do Jewish women talk about midlife? Hi, I'm Devara Krasniansky, and I've been coaching women for a long time in all areas of life, including women in midlife. Midlife is an exciting time, but it's also confusing, and so I invite experts to join me here as we unpack this crazy and interesting time of our lives. You can join our conversations on our Facebook group, Jewish Women Talk About Midlife, and on our website, Jewish Midlife. In this episode, we delve into the fascinating and complex world of perimenopause and menopause. As women, we all experience these life stages differently, but one thing is certain, there's a lot going on in our bodies as our estrogen levels decline. From hot flashes to mood changes, weight gain to insomnia, and even unseen issues like bone loss and heart concerns, navigating this transition can be challenging. To shed light on this important topic, I had the privilege of hosting Dr. Robin Hilsenrath, an expert in menopause. Throughout our comprehensive conversation, Dr. Hilsenrath explores various aspects of menopause, providing insights into what happens within our bodies, and she shares strategies to address its symptoms. We discuss everything from hormonal treatments to pharmaceutical options and natural remedies. Moreover, we delve into the risks and benefits of hormone replacement therapy, HRT, different methods of HRT, and essential factors to consider when making decisions about your health. Our intention is to equip you with the knowledge necessary for effective conversations with your doctor, understanding which symptoms to discuss, your current lifestyle, your familial background, and personal preferences are crucial in managing your menopause journey in a way that empowers you to feel your best. I want to express my sincere gratitude to Dr. Hilsenrath for sharing such invaluable information with us today. I must admit there's an abundance of information covered in this episode. In addition to the timestamps provided, allowing you to revisit specific parts of our talk, I've also compiled extra resources on our website at jewishmidlife.com. If you have any other questions about your own menopause experience or your midlife journey, please don't hesitate to reach out. We're here to support you, whether through private conversations or by creating future episodes on relevant topics. Enjoy this episode and use the timestamps as both a guide and a summary of this important conversation. Thank you, Robin, Dr. Robin Hilsenrath, for talking to us about menopause. And I'm so glad I met you in South Florida when we did that retreat. And I was looking for someone who was dynamic and passionate about menopause to talk about this topic. And then I met you and I'm like, wow, Robin, just the energy that you were giving and the knowledge you were just like giving out that day. And I said, okay, I'm gonna ask you to talk about menopause. So I do a lot of talking to people about the emotional side of men of midlife and what comes next. And then there's always inevitably the questions about and talking about menopause, which I think is really a medical doctor information, nothing that I can give. So I put out the fact that I'm going to be talking to you and ask people to send me some questions. We have some really good questions and I send them to you in advance, but I have some more questions that will come through in this conversation. So once again, thank you for doing this. And as we get started, could you talk a little bit about the work that you do in general, and then more specifically, what you do with menopause? Thank you. Absolutely. Well, it was so great to meet you too. And some of my friends really enjoyed the podcast on bone health. And this is a good segue, because as we know, there are some benefits with hormone replacement therapy to protect bones. My name is Robin Hilsenrath. I'm trained as an OBGYN and I'm fellowship trained in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So reproductive endocrinology deals with hormones, whether it's hormones to make someone ovulate, hormones for menopause, hormones for birth control. 
I do IVF, I do infertility, I do hormonal counseling. So thank you for inviting me. And I wrote a little outline. And basically what I would like to do is give a definition of menopause and some statistics, discuss why it occurs and what the hormonal changes we go through at that time. I then wanna discuss the benefits of our own natural estrogen and then what happens in the absence or in the decrease of estrogen. I then of course wanna talk about the risks and benefits of hormone replacement therapy, the types of hormone replacement therapy, how we deliver it to our bodies, and then kind of make a summary. So basically, menopause is the definition of no period for one year in the absence of other pathologies or in the absence of pregnancy. The average age of menopause, and these studies were done in white American women, is 51 years of age. However, menopause can start in the 40s. We begin the perimenopause, the time where our cycles are changing at the age of 40. Any cessation or stopping of periods before age 40 is called premature menopause or premature ovarian failure. So from the age of 40, we are perimenopausal. When we lose our period for 12 months, it's considered the menopause. And then some people have then designated a third stage of our life calling the postmenopause, but it's really a transition. So once we lose our periods, I can say I'm in continuous menopause or I'm postmenopausal. It's all the same thing. Now, why do we go into menopause? When we are fetuses, we have four to five million follicles, which are baby eggs in our ovaries. The minute we're born, Devora, we lose more than 50, 60% of our eggs, and we're only born with one to two million. Now that's still a lot, but it's little compared to what we had when we were a fetus. Now, when we get our first period, our egg count then goes down to 500,000. And each month we use up several eggs in the process of ovulation. By the time we're 40, we may have 10,000 eggs left. So that's when we begin the period of the perimenopause. So that's pretty much the definition. Now, why do we go into menopause? Again, it's a natural transition. We go into the menopause because we run out of eggs. And how does that happen hormonally in our body? The two main hormones of the ovary are estrogen and progesterone. There's many other hormones, testosterone, DHEA, DHEAS, inhibin. There's so many hormones, but we're all familiar most with estrogen and progesterone. So the ovary produces most of the estrogen and progesterone, but the adrenal glands do produce a little bit of estrogen and testosterone. And testosterone is converted to estrogen. Adrenal glands are little triangular shaped glands that sit on top of the kidneys, adrenal, above the kidneys. So the first thing that happens in the perimenopause and people who don't always count their cycles or go to mikvah may not notice that the first subtle change that we see in the menopause is that our periods get shorter and shorter. So somebody may not notice unless they're a mikvah goer, 
that their cycles have gone from 30 days to 28 days. And then what happens is they space out a little bit. And then you can actually miss periods for two, three months at a time. So when we go into complete menopause, most of our estrogen is gone. Again, the adrenal gland makes testosterone, which can be converted to low doses of estrogen. But estrogen and progesterone are very important for our well-being from head to toe. So I want to talk about what estrogen does for us. And if I really start, start at the head, I can tell you that estrogen gives us good hair, shiny hair. It helps our brain. It helps our cognition and our memory. If I want to then go down to my skin, estrogen gives us good skin. Mucous membranes. Mucous membranes are the tissue that we have inside our mouth, inside our uterine lining, inside our bladder, and inside our vagina. So estrogen lubricates those tissues so they maintain their normal moisturization. Now, why am I telling you everything that estrogen is good for? Because I'm going to, and again, this is our natural estrogen. Then I'm gonna tell you what happens in the menopause with decreased estrogen. If we go down to the heart, I'll talk about some studies later, but estrogen protects our heart and gives us normal blood flow. We go to the breasts, estrogen allows us to develop glandular tissue and allows us to have higher prolactin levels so we can nurse our babies. Estrogen is shown in some studies to protect us against colon cancer. Getting down to the bladder, again, I talked about the mucous membranes. It allows us to have no problems with urinary incontinence. Estrogen protects our vaginal lining. In that area, it also gives us our libido and our sex drive. Just going down the body, we can be talking about the bones. Estrogen protects our bones. Um, going down even further, it affects skin and nails. It even affects you know, the bone health in the teeth. So from head to toe, having estrogen in our body keeps us, keeps us healthy. Now, what happens when we have decreased estrogen? If you ask someone who's going through menopause or gone through menopause, I think, Devorah, what they would say most often is probably the number two or three symptoms would be hot flashes, vaginal dryness, and then decreased sex drive or decreased libido. Also with that, I guess the number four symptom, and it depends on who you're asking, maybe mood changes, memory changes, problems remembering things, um, decreased concentration, sometimes even depression. Um, there are many other more things, but I would say that those are the top four. Again, there's decreased bone mineralization leading to osteopenia, weak bones, or even weaker bones called osteoporosis. There's dry skin, there's dry hair, brittle nails, more cavities, losing more teeth. There's even without estrogen, central obesity, where we get our belly fat. So our body changes, breasts become smaller, and the lack of estrogen in the menopause 
or in this transitional period can be very difficult for some women. It can really disrupt all aspects of your life. There are some people, I spoke to someone the other day in her menopause, she felt like things were crawling on her. Some people have anxiety. Some people feel their heart raising, racing. Some people have headaches. So the symptoms can vary. Some people can go through this transition, Devora, very, very smoothly, and others find it life-altering and really only in a negative way. So we talked about decreased estrogen, decreased progesterone, decreased testosterone. We have testosterone, but there's less of it because the ovaries produce less of it. But thank God, the adrenal glands produce a little bit of it. But the real question is, is even when the adrenal glands produce the testosterone and convert it into one of the three estrogens, estrone, is it still enough to keep us healthy? So I want to talk now about the risks and the benefits. I think, Devora, we touched upon this briefly before we came live. There are so many studies on the risks and benefits of hormone replacement studies. There was the Women's Health Initiative that went from 1991 to 2005. And after that study, Devora, so many women stopped hormone replacement therapy, including my own mother because the studies show that there's more risks than benefits. And I'll go over those. Then there's other studies that say, well, that study wasn't performed well. The woman started the estrogen 10 years after menopause. They were on different compounds. They were on for different durations of time. So how could we make a proper study? But that study showed more risks of breast cancer, heart disease, strokes, and blood clots than benefits. And the main oh. benefits were touted to be bone protection and prevention of hot flashes. Now, I just wanna mention, before I go into the common known risks that everybody talks about, is the risk of uterine cancer. If a woman has her intact uterus, has never had a hysterectomy, if she opts for hormone replacement therapy, Estrogen alone is not enough. She needs to have progesterone. Too much estrogen can cause the lining of the uterus to undergo malignant changes, meaning precancer or cancer. So to combat unopposed estrogen, too much estrogen, a woman needs progesterone. Whether I give it to her daily to try to prevent a period, or whether I give it to her cyclically for 10 days of the month, then she'll get a flow. Either method of progesterone supplementation protects against uterine cancer or what we call endometrial hyperplasia, which can then potentially lead to endometrial cancer or carcinoma. So that's really all I want to say about the risks of hormone replacement therapy and uterine cancer, because I've never seen that in anyone on hormone replacement therapy. Can I just interrupt so, for a second? We're yeah, please. Hyst ablation. Is that do they need progesterone or they don't need? They still need progesterone because when you ablate the lining of the uterus, you burn it, you destroy it. 
so that somebody no longer has heavy periods. That's the number one reason for uterine ablation. Mm -hmm. However, if there's still a small segment of the uterus, and it could be two, three millimeters of active uterine tissue that could undergo cancerous changes. So even in ablation, it's recommended with a uterus, with an intact uterus, estrogen and progesterone. Now, if someone's had a hysterectomy, you can give them estrogen therapy alone. And we'll talk about adding on testosterone therapy later. But the main risks that you read in the literature, and again, there was the Women's Health Initiative, there's the HERS study, um, there's the nurses study, and then Devoer, to be perfectly honest, there's several other studies that have taken all the literature and researched them for years and tried to get an overall risk. So one study showed that the risk of breast cancer is one woman in every thousand. One of my most favorite studies showed that it's two women that get breast cancer out of a thousand. And that gives us a 0.2% increased risk of breast cancer. So we have to weigh the pros and cons. I'm gonna talk about in a minute who cannot take estrogen replacement, but what's my chance of falling if I have osteoporosis and having a hip fracture? And I'm sure you know, Deborah, ladies, men too, but ladies who fractured their hip and the surgery is successful, but they still die. And that's because these older ladies could get pneumonia or God forbid, a blood clot, a deep vein thrombosis that travels from their legs to their lungs. And that's called a pulmonary embolism. So basically, is hormone therapy right for you, right for me? We'll see. Ultimately, that's gonna be a personal decision. So breast cancer. Now, one of the latest studies I read said that after five years of use, if you use estrogen alone, your risk of breast cancer was 17% higher. And if you used estrogen and progesterone together, it was 40% higher. We have to look at our own personal risks, which I'll go over in just a second. Um, before I discuss, I think the other risks, we should probably just address what are our risks of breast cancer in general. Without a family history of breast cancer, Years ago, the risk was one in 11. Then it was one in 10, one in 10 women. The latest statistics show that, Devorah, if you and I, we really shouldn't say us, but let's say there's a group of eight ladies going out to celebrate somebody's birthday. The new statistic, Devorah, is one in eight. One of those ladies will be getting breast cancer. Now, what increases our risks is a family history of a first degree relative. First degree relative would be our mother, our children, no, our siblings and our children. I could have a great aunt, a second degree relative, a third degree relative. It's really a first degree relative that increases our risk. The other risks are higher exposure to estrogen, such as getting our period early and our periods only begin with the rise of estrogen and going into menopause late. Ultimately, that means more years of estrogen exposure. 
Um, the other risk factors are our weight, smoking, and having dense breasts. Um, so if someone knows that they have a high risk of breast cancer just by being a woman, or maybe having a family history, they have to weigh the pros and cons. Do they want another 0.2% chance of breast cancer? After 10 years of use, one study showed that it would be 0.4% increased. And another study showed that after 15 years of hormone replacement therapy, the risk was 1.2%. But again, another study said it could be high, as high as 40 to 50%. So it really depends on so many different factors. Now, not to just focus on breast cancer. Some of the studies showed that estrogen is not as protective of heart disease as we thought it was. So some of the risk factors now include small, small chances of non-fatal myocardial infarctions or heart attack, non-fatal uh, coronary heart disease, strokes, and blood clots. So those are things to take into consideration. But if we wanna talk about what the initial indications for estrogen replacement were, or hormone replacement, that would be prevention of osteoporosis, prevention or treatment of hot flashes. And studies have shown that estrogen replacement therapy decreases the incidence of colorectal cancer. So looking at the literature, I cannot give you a hard and fast number for the risks, but the newer studies show that the risks are now small and that the benefits, unlike that Women's Health Initiative back in 1991, that the benefits may outweigh the risks. Um, so I wanted to talk about the methods of hormone replacement therapy. So remember, Devorah, with the uterus, we need progesterone in addition to estrogen. Um, without a uterus, we can just do estrogen. Now, estrogen can be delivered systemically by a pill or something that's transdermal, a patch, a gel, a cream. Estrogen can also be just applied topically a vaginal cream, a vaginal ring that just delivers estrogen to the vagina. And those studies certainly, Devorah, have shown no increased risk of breast cancer or strokes or heart attacks because it's only absorbed locally. So there's pills, there's patches, there's creams, there's gels, there's injections, there's rings, um, there's even vaginal pills. So there's so many different options. But I think, Devorah, you, you told me that a lot of people wanna know about bioidentical hormones. So I think back in the 70s or 80s, there was this actress who got breast cancer. And I don't know how many of your viewers watch TV and I've never seen her in TV, but she touts and advocates bioidentical hormones. And that lady is Suzanne Summers. And bioidentical hormones are hormones that are supposed to be identical 
bioidentical to what I make naturally. And they're made of plant and animal derivatives. So while it's still made in the lab, it's supposed to be more natural. Now, before I get into what some of them are, if you asked me, are bioidentical hormones less risky than what we get from the pharmacy? The answer is no. If I'm correct, I think Suzanne Summers had breast cancer and was still advocating bioidentical hormones. But breast cancer, I need to write this down so that I don't forget, or maybe you'll remind me. I want to talk about the contraindications, but I don't really know how she touted bioidentical hormones because breast cancer is an absolute no-no contraindication to hormone replacement therapy. So there are some bioidentical hormones that you can buy from the pharmacy, like estrace, like prometrium. A lot of them are made from natural plants. Some of them are made from wild yams. The best bioidentical hormones are those that will be made in a compounding factory. The problem is, is they're not subjected to the same rules when it's made, you know, with uh, AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson or Merck. So um, there are synthetic hormones like um, the estrogen that you get, like the Provera, like the Colipil called um, norethindrone. Um, and then there's the biosynthetic and then there's the, uh, the bioidentical and then there's the compounded ones. And um, just to put it out there, I have a patient now who wants bioidentical hormones and I called up a compounding factory and this pharmacist was a genius. This is a pharmacist in Florida, actually. We spent 45 minutes on the phone. And for this particular woman, she's making a compound of low dose estrogen. She's giving her progesterone too to protect her uterus and she's giving her a little bit of testosterone. So it'll be very interesting to see how this woman does. And this particular woman's a little bit older, but just finding that memory and libido issues. So we'll see how she does. But getting back to the contraindications, there's something called absolute contraindications where it's 100% a no-no and relative contraindications. Absolute no-nos are having a personal history of breast cancer, although some physicians are now allowing those women with previous breast cancer to maybe use localized vaginal estrogen because it's not really absorbed. Having a history of a deep vein thrombosis, which is a blood clot, or having a history of a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot that actually broke away. The other things that I just thought of since I see this in ladies with recurrent miscarriage labs are carrying certain proteins or the absence of certain proteins in our blood that make us more susceptible to a clot. Some of those things, maybe the listeners haven't heard, but they're called protein S or protein C deficiency, factor five Leiden or MTHFR. So again, if someone has a history where a young father has gotten 
a heart attack at a young age, or a mother in her pregnancy got a deep vein thrombosis. Hopefully those young ladies, before they started hormones, even devour if it's birth control pills to prevent a pregnancy. If I see somebody like that, where they have a, a bad family history, I have to make sure they don't carry or they're not missing any of those special proteins. The relative contraindications are having a family history, not a personal history, a family history of breast cancer. Um, and again, then somebody's risks might be increased because their mother has it or their sister or their child, they have to weigh the risks and, and benefits as well. So let me just stop for a second and see if you or any of your listeners have any questions so far, because I've thrown a lot of information out there. You definitely have. Okay. When you say localized, uh, like with vaginal uh, the pellets or whatever that is, is it also as powerful as uh, for the bone health and everything else that we spoke about, or is it more for the localized no, issues? It's just for the localized issue, whether it's a pill, a cream, or a ring, you know, in the pills you put in twice a week, the cream you put in two, three times a week, the ring can stay in. Even there's a, a ring that's good for three months, but it's just localized. It won't help hot flashes. It will not protect my bones. It's not gonna increase my sex drive. Now, if a woman has less pain with intercourse and less vaginal dryness, that may actually stimulate her in a sense to not be afraid to have relations because it's not going to hurt her. It's not going to give her more desire. You know, her hormone levels are not becoming really substantially increased with the localized therapy. Okay, so it doesn't have all of the other benefits that we spoke about. That's exactly right. Like the moods and the brain fog and all of that. It's just local. Okay. It's just the local. Okay. At what point in our perimenopause, or is it only after menopause, do we start with the HRT? It's a very good question. One of the reasons one of these studies was flawed was because the woman started at age 60. So if a woman stops her period at age 50, how much heart disease, how much bone disease has she had between 50 and 60 before she actually starts? So the real question is, we start hormone replacement therapy when our symptoms require it. Working in Muncie, New York, where so many, and again, I live in two places right now, in New Jersey and in Florida, but working in Muncie, a lot of my patients from 45 to 55 use some sort of hormones because knowing that it's such a big firm community, you can't go to the mikvah and be clean and then get a period two, three days later. So a lot of those ladies, they're using hormones, but usually in the form of a birth control pill or a nuvering, a vaginal ring that has estrogen and progesterone so they can cycle themselves. And they can cycle themselves so they don't get a period for two to three months. So it really depends on your symptoms. If someone goes into menopause at 40, then we can begin the therapy now. She doesn't have to wait till age 51, just because the statistics says that the average age of menopause 
in white American women. That's what the study was done on. So I'm just quoting, you know, the literature. So just because it may have begun in you or or somebody else, in me or somebody else at 51, doesn't mean if someone else has the symptoms or has no period at age 45 that we have to wait. So it's basically based upon the symptoms. There are some ladies that are still getting periods that experience vaginal dryness. They can either use a vaginal lubricant, they can use just a vaginal moisturizer. That's an everyday thing. It helps a little bit. They can use a lubricant just when they're sexually active. Or some of my 45-year-olds are actually using a little bit of vaginal estrogen to kind of ease that transition because they're noticing some dryness. So we start it when the symptoms dictate it. And still a lot of people are afraid because if your mother didn't use it or your sister doesn't use it or your girlfriends don't use it, you don't really know much about it. And when my mother stopped, because her doctor told her to, you know, we went through this whole list of questions. You know, do you need it? Do you have hot flashes? I didn't want to get too personal with my mother, but you know, these are the other symptoms, mom. Do you need it? Because if you don't need it, fine, stay off it. But if you need it, you know, the research is a little flawed. There are there are benefits. So sometimes the uh, symptoms are obvious to you, like the hot flashes and the brain fog. And uh, But when we're talking about bone health, you don't really know until you know, until either you do like some sort of test or you fall. So, this, so some, some symptoms are a little bit more invisible. Right. Now, I was once at our American Society for Reproductive Annual Meeting. And the man who wrote the book on hormones is a man named Leon Spiroff. And I asked him in a public forum, at what age should we begin calcium and vitamin D? And really this day, the real answer is more vitamin D than calcium. And his answer was, was, was kind of smug, but he said, well, when do you begin your period? So the answer is, is really by 18, we should be starting vitamin D3. Some of the calcium has been shown to cause other problems. So it's more the vitamin D3. But in answer to your question, to protect our bones, we need a healthy diet. We need some calcium from dietary sources. We need the vitamin D3, we need sun, we need magnesium to increase it, but we also need weight-bearing exercises. Now, women from my patients, as soon as they hit the menopause or their periods are changing, I like to get a baseline bone density. I wasn't around, I haven't listened to the other podcasts about bone health, but very often when they wanna do, radiologists wanna do bone densitometry, they measure the thickness of the bone. They'll do the wrist, or the ankle, that is not the place to do. It should be the hip and the lumbar spine. And they will give a woman uh, a T-score and that's compared to other women their age. So if your T-score is more negative than 2.5, you have full-blown osteoporosis. And I'm thinking for a second, Deborah, 
I think if your number is minus one or minus 1.5 until 2.5, you have osteopenia. Now, I'm glad you asked me this question because for almost every symptom of menopause, there's a non-hormonal alternative. So if someone's suffering mood changes or depression, there are antidepressants. If someone is suffering insomnia, there are medicines for that. Whether it's a sleeping pill or exercise before bed or melatonin, a Valium, there's all sorts of non-hormonal treatments for that. If someone is experiencing stress urinary incontinence, the mucous membranes of the bladder get dry, so you're urinating at night, you're urinating more frequently, or we're losing urine, there's medicines for that. Of course, you can also just use vaginal estrogen. That will actually help the bladder as well, but there's medicines for that. If someone has bad bones, there's bone building medication. And that bone building medication is supposed to A, prevent the breakdown of bone, and B, create new osteoblasts, new bone building precursors. Um, I'm trying to think what other symptoms. If there's vaginal dryness, you can use just lubrication or moisturizer. Um, for almost every symptom, for hot flashes, Devorah, there are some natural herbs and vitamins. And um, if you have a second, let me just talk about some of those things. For hot flashes, there are some herbs and supplements that contain a little bit of estrogen. The biggest ones that help are black cohash. Um, I just, just want to look at my notes for a second. Um, we do use vitamin. It's, it's a host of hormones. But there's vitamin C, high doses of vitamin C, high doses of vitamin E, um, garlic oil. Uh, let me just get my list for a second so I can tell you. Um, that's what I was thinking. Um, red clover and evening primrose oil and valerian root. Um, some people say St. John's wort will help your memories, um, help your memory. Um, but some of the foods with phytoestrogens are um, some cruciferous vegetables, soy, berries, seeds and grains, and nuts. However, there's no studies to really support that um, it prevents hot flashes. It certainly doesn't help bones because if we look at Asian people, and I know I'm going back and forth, but it really is all tying together. If we talk about how Asians have so much soy in their diet, it doesn't protect their bones because Caucasians and Asians have the worst bone mineral density of any population. If you look at um, an African-American, a black American, they go into the menopause with much thicker and heavier bones. So while some of these foods may help hot flashes a little bit, it's more the supplements, vitamin E, vitamin C. Um, we all need vitamin D anyway. The black cohash, the evening primrose oil, a flaxseed oil as well, and red clover. It helps some people. So... There's on the one hand, there's the HRT, which has its own trade-offs. On the other hand, they can take a whole cocktail of 
pills as, so that you're not taking any hormones though? One of the latest studies show that Paxil, one of the antidepressants, will actually help with hot flashes. You know, so that's another another reason to use antidepressants to treat the menopause, not just for mood or depression. It can help hot flashes as well. It's very hard, Devorah, to maintain that cocktail of six, seven supplements twice a day. Some people can do it. Um, but just like you said, all those supplements to help hot flashes may not help your bones, but there's medicine. Uh, there's Fosamex, there's Actinil, there's Boniva. You know, those are called um, biphosphonates. They themselves, Devora, have risk factors too. You know, um, bone disease in the teeth, gum, bone disease, yeah. Um, if someone has acid reflux, it, it makes it 10 times worse, you know. So there are lots of um, alternatives for hormone replacement therapy. Um, I'm not sure we're done, but talking about all this, I just wanted to say that me personally, I'm a proponent of hormone replacement therapy and I'm not afraid of it. And I'm not afraid to take it if I need it. I actually don't, thank God. But I'm not a I'm not afraid to discuss with a patient the risks and the benefits and see what her goals are to see what symptoms I need to treat. So basically, a person needs to make an educated decision that's best for them. And what the FDA and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says is discuss the risks with your patient, discuss the benefits, use the smallest dose of hormone replacement therapy for the shortest amount of time needed. And again, just to reiterate, the minute somebody stops it, many of her symptoms may come back. But I believe in hormone replacement. I don't force anybody to do it. There are alternatives, be them pharmaceutical alternatives or natural. But from head to toe, looking at our bone density, speaking with our healthcare providers, the decision that's right for me may not be the decision that's right for you or someone else. Okay. So then you, you did mention about the different types. Uh, are they all equally valid or are there also different considerations or is this the consideration the way you prefer, like the patch versus the cream because creams could be messier. So someone may prefer the patch or is there really a medical difference? Medically, there's no difference. If you tell me that you have very sensitive skin and get a rash on the patch, then I can't give you the patch. Um, I used to give an estrogen patch and oral progesterone. They even had a patch called the combi patch that had estrogen and progesterone combined. Um, there are younger ladies in the menopause that still want to get a period. So then you don't give them progesterone every day. You give them, usually it's, medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is called Provera. And the minimal dosage, the minimal dosage to prevent abnormal uterine changes is 10 milligrams daily for 10 to 12 days of the month. 
Of course, once they take that for 10 to 12 days and they stop it, they will get a period, which is if that's what you want, that's okay. So if, if someone has a reaction to patches, they have sensitive skin, I'm not going to use it. Then I'm going to mostly use uh, the orals. And even with the orals, Devora, there's separate estrogen, estradiol, estrace, and there's separate progesterones. Norethindrone, which is the colopil, or Provera. So you can use them separately. Again, together, continuous, or estrogen for the whole month, and progesterone for 10 to 12 days. And then some of the pharmaceutical companies many years ago came out with Prem Pro. Premarin, which is the estrogen, and Pro, progesterone, one pill that combines it. And what's interesting about that pill is they have different doses of estrogen and different doses of progesterone. So that if I wanted to give someone just the oral pill, I would start out with the lowest. Again, if someone goes into an early menopause, I'm clearly giving the lady much more estrogen if she goes into the menopause at 35. And remember, losing our periods before the age of 40 is called premature ovarian failure, premature menopause. And they need to be treated a little bit more aggressively because they've lost their estrogen 10, 15 years before the rest of us normally do. Another question is, you said to continue with the medication as long as you have the symptoms, but you don't have the symptoms if you are taking the medication. So how do and you- that's, And that's the funny part is they say, treat the patient with the lowest dose of hormones for the shortest period of time. But guess what? I'm gonna stop the hormones. My symptoms are gonna come back. So as we go through this transition, some of the hot flashes get lesser on their own. They kind of abate with time. Um, does the vaginal tissue get better after you stop hormones? No, it only gets worse. Does the urinary incontinence or the noctiuria and going to the bathroom two, three times at night get better? No, it gets worse. So some people need it and stay on it for many years. There's a problem with compliance. Even me, you tell me to take antibiotics, I feel better after a few days and then I stop. So some of the studies show that most people don't stay on their hormones for more than five years. But some of the symptoms become more tolerable, say. And let's say someone's used hormone replacement therapy from 55 to 65. Maybe their male partner now may have erectile issues himself. So the issue of vaginal dryness and libido are no longer a problem. Again, we can have vaginal dryness and feel uncomfortable throughout the day or just vaginal dryness that affects us during relations. So you are right. We start it when we have symptoms. If we stop it, some of those symptoms will recur. Could be all of them, could be some of them. Some are less and more tolerable. Sometimes those symptoms no longer bother you because you may not be sexually active. Or maybe you're having a glass of wine before you go to bed at night. Or maybe you're now using melatonin. So the approach for everybody is different. Then I still, I'm still going back to the bone and heart health, whether, whether there are symptoms that you can tolerate. Some people have different uh, tolerance levels and they, uh, or, 
But these other reasons why we take uh, for our skin or for our heart or our bones don't go away after you would stop taking the hormones. So then you would have to, it sounds to me as a layperson, that you would have to replace it now with some other pharmaceutical. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if someone stays on estrogen her whole life till 120, she may go into, you know, well into her older years without osteopenia, without osteoporosis. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the ladies that I'm putting on the bone building medication have stopped their estrogen or never even started it. But most of the ladies do not stay on for more than five years, whether it's because they're afraid and because they don't need it because of a compliance issue. But in theory, this is something that we should consider using until 120. And again, what are my risks? What are my benefits? You know, if my bones look good and then I stop hormones and then I live another 30, 40 years, what are my bones going to look like then? And what are the risks of the biphosphonates? So, you know, the bone building medications. So every medication has its benefits. And unfortunately, every medication has its risks. I hear what you're saying. And maybe if more women stayed on hormone replacement therapy, maybe we'd have less hip fractures and less osteoporosis, but most people don't stay on it for long periods of time. Are they not staying on it because of the studies or what they're hearing? Or family members are saying, mom, why do you need that? Or their daughters or their sisters are saying, you're 70, why are you taking hormones? Because we're not really educated about it. And again, my mother took it, her doctor said stop and she stopped. You know, um, so maybe we as physicians or people in the healthcare, maybe we need to educate our patients more. You know, and sometimes people, when they finally find out, maybe they're 60, maybe they're 65, and now they have osteoporosis. Now they're trying to catch up. But most doctors at 65 are not going to say to a lady, we'll start estrogen now. They're just going to give the bone building medications. And maybe there'd be less of a need for them if we stayed on the estrogen and, of course, the progesterone, if we have a uterus, into our 70s and 80s. Okay. So talking about the progesterone, the uh, the estradiol patch has progesterone or it's, you have to take that separately? Yes, exactly. The estradiol patch is just estradiol. And, of course, in that one, there's different doses, they're different size. Some you change once a week, some you change twice a week. With certain ladies, you start out with the lowest dose. If that doesn't work, you go to the higher dose, then there's a higher dose. But those ladies would need, um, there's no pure estrogen patch. So they would need, um, I'm sorry, there's no pure progesterone patch. So they would need oral progesterone. Now there are patches that have estrogen and progesterone combined. So if that doesn't work for them, meaning there's breakthrough bleeding, there's spotting, um, then these ladies could do an estrogen patch with oral progesterone. Even at the lowest dosage? Like the lowest mm -hmm. dosage I was told is that it's so low that it's almost, uh, almost a placebo. Of progesterone? Of, um, of estrogen. 
know any dose of estrogen replacement therapy in a woman with an intact uterus requires balancing what we call unopposed estrogen with progesterone. So listen, some people can get away, Devorah, with the lowest dose. And if that's going to be the best dose for her, amazing. Less is sometimes more. Less is sometimes better. But anybody taking any estrogen other than vaginal needs oral progesterone to counteract the effects of, of excessive or unopposed estrogen. Okay. Um, does a uh, question someone asked, does the HRT help with skin? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have skin dryness and without estrogen, if I, if somebody doesn't use estrogen um, moisturizers or estrogen replacement therapy, their skin gets dry. Now, again, do I need estrogen? I can use hydration. I can use sunscreen to prevent wrinkling if I'm in the sun and I can use moisturizer. So there are other ways to treat that. But yes, lack of estrogen will cause thinning hair, brittle nails, brittle teeth, more teeth fall out and dry skin. So then the, my question is, if you have some of the, some of the symptoms seem to have gotten less, but some have not, like there's less brain fog, but the hot flashes are still there. Does that mean you have to go up to the next dosage or try, try the next dosage, the next level? Yeah, try the next dosage. Or if you said to me, oh my gosh, I'm thinking so more clearly, my hot flashes still bother me. I'll say, okay, Devorah, I can put you on low dose Paxil. That'll get rid of your hot flashes. Maybe I can give you vitamin C and vitamin E and black cohesh. And you might say, you know what? That's really too much. I can't, I can't take all those pills. Then we'll try the next higher dose. You have to work. You have to, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of a story, which I'll share with you in a second. You have to work with the patients. The doctor really needs patience. I have a girl getting married. Not my girl. I have a patient getting married. And I have to give her birth control pills so she's not nida, so she doesn't bleed on her wedding day. And I gave her one type of birth control pills. And after three days, she said, I'm so bloated. You know, I feel so disgusting. I can't even imagine being intimate with my husband. I changed birth control pills. I changed the dosage of the progesterone. Third pill, I changed the dose of the estrogen. Finally, I gave her NuvaRing. Now again, she's not in her 50s, she's a 20 year old Kala. I gave her the NuvaRing, which is a ring with estrogen and progesterone. And she texted me and said, thank you for working with me. I don't feel bloated, I don't feel fat, I feel amazing. So, you know, we'll take that out of uh, two weeks before her wedding, she'll put it back in. A week before, she'll go to the mikvah, she'll be clean. But I worked with her. And you need a lot of patience to say, okay, Devorah, how can we tweak you? What do we need to raise to make you feel better? So what I'm also hearing then is really start getting a good relationship with your doctor because you're going to be spending some time with them. Yes. Now, we talked about estrogen and progesterone. Some people need testosterone. We make testosterone premenopausal. And while our estrogen levels become super low in the menopause or postmenopausal, whatever you want to call it, again, it's that transition 
perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause. Really, once we're in the menopause, we don't have to say post because that's that's the next stage of our life. But um, while we know that uh, estrogen decreases, the adrenal glands will make some testosterone. Testosterone has a role in bone health, less known than estrogen, but it also has a role in well-being. Now, men, there's something in men called low T. And I, I equate that to like uh, a male menopause. And they have fatigue, lethargy, inability to concentrate. These men go on testosterone replacement. Now, for men, there's pills, there's patches, and there's injections. For ladies, there's no testosterone replacement. There used to be a pill called Estratest, half strength and full strength. It was a pill that gave you estrogen and testosterone. I loved it as a physician and I gave the woman progesterone on top. They took it off the market. Anyway, testosterone is not absorbed very well orally. So for men, right, they make the pills, which aren't so good, the patches, the shots. Now, if you go to a compounding factory, men can get a spray, men can get a cream. You rub it on your inner thigh, on your inner arm. It increases their testosterone. Their male menopause is, is fixed. For us, we have to get testosterone from a compounding pharmacy. And again, they can make it in a gel. They can make it in a spray. I told you I spoke to a pharmacist the other day. And she said, hey, doc, I think that just giving your patient um, a compounding cream just made of testosterone isn't going to be enough in the face of a low estrogen. So, you know, we're going to do a little experiment. Just give this lady testosterone, see if she's better as far as her sex drive goes. And if not, then I'll give her a little bit of estrace. And of course, with the estrogen, I have to add some progesterone into that whole picture. But the compounding factories or uh, compounding pharmacies, I'm sorry, are really important for us because there's no way to get testosterone. And if we took an injection, we'd be growing a beard, you know, and having a very deep voice. And even with excess testosterone, a woman can have clitoromegaly where the clitoris is, is slightly enlarged. So we can't use patches. We can't use pills. They're in the dose for a man. A man's testosterone should be above 280 to 1,000. Our testosterone level should be under 100. So we have to go to a compounding pharmacy if we want that. It sounds like something that we're going to have to work with the FDA, not me and you, but somebody ought to figure out where, why I got off the market. How are we going to? Well, the estrotase, maybe because it because you can't really, you really have to check a woman's testosterone levels. You really have to work with your endocrinologist or your internist or your OBGYN because the first thing that you do when someone comes in complaining, more so for libido, is you check the estrogen, you check the testosterone, and then as you treat her, you can check the levels because you don't want those levels to go too high. Okay. So just to clarify for someone who doesn't know what a compound pharmacy is, can you just say that in three sentences? Sure. It's a pharmacy that obviously they'll still dispense regular pharmaceutical drugs, 
but they have a specialist in their pharmacy who's trained how to take estrogen and compound it into a cream. And you can tell the pharmacist what somebody's desires are. And it's interesting because you can get it in a tube and you can do clicks, you can do sprays, you can even do like, put the cream on uh, half an inch or an inch. And basically the more you give, the more dose you get. So the pharmacist can compound something and he or she's had special training in how to take estrogen, how to take progesterone and how to take those compounds and make them into a topical. Again, a spray, a cream, a gel. And let's just say that uh, four clicks, I'll give you an example, is four milligrams of testosterone. Well, the pharmacist may say, start with one click. So you get one milligram and see how you do with that. You know, and then again, in that cream, you can have estrogen, you can have progesterone, and you can have testosterone. You can even add in other things if you need it to be. There are some studies about replacing DHEA, dehydroandosterone, epiandosterone, and DHEAS, dehydroepiandosterone sulfate. Some of the studies show that that's better for fetal brain function, better for our function, but there's no studies to really support that. But anything, anything, certain things can be compounded. You know, it all is based upon what the pharmacist has um, experience with. And there are pharmacies that will list all the things that they can compound. The best place for a person to go is a compounding pharmacy that specializes in HRT. And not just for men, because their doses are so much higher than what we need. Mm -hmm. Usually though, to be perfectly honest, someone who's gonna know how to give testosterone replacement to a man in a cream is going to know exactly how to do it with a woman. You know, and it's a really, it's a small percentage of what the men get or need. So what I understand is compound pharmacy is sort of like a customized medicine like to get you more nuanced than the typical things that are on the shelf in the back of the pharmacy, not-, not Right, all. and just to let you know, most insurances will not cover, but the woman that I'm getting a cream for now, she is getting a three month supply for $112. So that's not really expensive at all. Oh, yeah. It's really I'm very doable. Compound pharmacy, they're not paying for all the marketing and like the AstraZeneca is paying for. So the prices are, could be, should be less because it's years, generic. Years ago, my very first job, I worked with an endocrinologist, a reproductive endocrinologist. And in women who had hysterectomies, he would insert pellets under the fat, fatty tissue of the abdomen subcutaneous, insert estrogen pellets. Pellets are still used, but not so frequently because you really must monitor the testosterone levels. It was just testosterone. The women loved it. They had energy. They had sex drive. It's not in such usage now, but people still use it. But again, we would need to be aware of what our levels are to make sure they're not too high. We don't want voice changes. We don't want hair growth. We don't want clitoromegaly. So usual standard 
hormone replacement therapy with estrogen and progesterone doesn't necessarily need blood or serum levels checked, but with testosterone, it's recommended. What do you mean it doesn't need your blood levels checked? You wouldn't if I if I give a woman standard estrogen progesterone hormone replacement therapy and she feels better again with the lowest dose, I don't need to check her estrogen levels. Okay. Again, I had a woman, the pills didn't work, nothing else worked, the patches didn't work. Finally, 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 I increased her dosage of the patch. And she and I was checking her levels. She just was not absorbing it, not absorbing it orally not absorbing a patch here. So we moved the place. We changed the brand of estrogen patch. We doubled the dose. They didn't make a higher dose for her. So I gave her two patches and we finally got her to a good place. And when I checked her estrogen, it was in a normal range. What's a normal range? When we are non-menopausal and we have our period, our estrogen on day two or day three is less than 35. When we ovulate, our estrogen is at least 200 if we're growing a good follicle. So in the menopause though, estrogen can be 10, can be 15, and there's no increase, there's no ovulation. So there's no feeling good around that periovulatory period. So this lady, when I checked her estrogen, all the time she wasn't absorbing it, it was less than 30. When we finally found the rice dose, it was like 100. It wasn't super high, but it was perfect for her. Good for her. I'm yeah, so yeah, yeah. She's she's happy. And she's lucky she has a doctor that's going to work with her. Yes. Okay. Someone else asked this question, kind of back to the beginning. So if we have our period, don't have a period for nine months, and then it comes back, is that normal? Yes. Yes. Irritating, but normal, right? And that yes. starts again, the counting of a year. Start counting months. all over again. Definition, 12 months of no period. Yes. And for Nida, it makes it very complex and frustrating, but that's... Well, that's why when you asked me, when does someone start hormone replacement therapy? In the community that I work in, a lot of 45 to 50-year-olds that are clean and then in need to two days later. They go back to the mikvah, maybe they're clean for three days maybe five days, they can't plan. They wanna go on a vacation. And they're still young enough that I don't have to give them standard hormone replacement therapy. That actually happens to be one-tenth the strength of a birth control pill. So they're still young. I'll just give them birth control pills. But really one of the favorites is the NuvaRing. You put it in, after three weeks, if you take it out, you get a period. But what they'll do, Devora, put it in, keep it in for three weeks, take it out, put in a new one. No periods. And some of these ladies can go for three, four months without a period. If they could stay clean the whole year, it's safe. But I tell them, don't wait till you have an occasion that you want to be clean for. Because that's when after three, four months, you'll probably start to stain. Just take it out. Get a period before your simcha. Get a period before your family photos are taken. So you could be really close to your husband in the photos. Do this before, you know, be on the second ring when you have that family simcha or be on the third row, you know, just plan it accordingly. So there's no surprises. 
But yes, a lot of my ladies in the perimenopause can go three, four months without a period. Yeah, but this this woman who I guess her thing is that she was nine months and then she planned a vacation because she was nine months clean naturally at 50, whatever she's, I don't remember what she said. And then bam. Murphy's Law. Yeah. But she but she wanted to know if it was healthy, if she was okay for starters. So the annoyance she'll have to deal with, but she is okay. Well, let me tell you what's not healthy. And I'm glad you brought that up. If you have a lady in the menopause, it's been 15 months, okay? She's not on hormones. 15 months, and all of a sudden she gets a period. That could be a sign of changes in the uterine lining called the endometrial hyperplasia. And that warrants a vaginal ultrasound to check the lining of the uterine cavity or the uterine stripe. I'm actually at my home office. I don't know if you can see this or if your viewers can see this. This is what I wanted to show you. So this is called the uterine lining. Right. So I'll put this uterus down now so I can talk with my hands since I'm Italian. So in the menopause, the lining needs to be less than three millimeters. So if someone has menopausal or po postmenopausal bleeding, they get an ultrasound and a uterine biopsy to detect any changes. Um, again, what your friend or this woman that you know is experiencing she could go 10 months without a period and bleed again. But once she hits the menopause, 12 months without a period, in that 14th month, in that 16th month, in that 18th month, ultrasound and biopsy. The biopsy is to take a piece of tissue and have the pathologist look under the microscope to make sure that there's no pre-cancer, pre-pre-pre-cancer, and if it's just hyperplasia, where the cells are a little bit bigger, we treat that with progesterone for three months. Uterine cancer usually comes from too much estrogen. Early puberty, late menopause, obesity, um, never having an interruption in your estrogen, like not having a child. And by the way, the risks of breast cancer are lowered when we have our first child before the age of 35. But the risks of uterine cancer are too much, or again, unopposed estrogen. You don't have any progesterone to balance it out. So if a woman who is menopausal, postmenopausal, has bleeding, if there's no cancer, we say, okay, Baruch Hashem. If there's endometrial hyperplasia and it's called simple, they reverse it with three months of progesterone, Provera, or even megase, another form of, of estrogen, of progesterone. And then they get a re-biopsy. And if everything's normal, they're good. But then they have to go through the whole thing again. If they're clean, have no periods for the next three, four years, and bleed again, the same thing. Vaginal ultrasound, uterine biopsy, test the tissue. Would it happen again that so she has her period now? And then five months from now again, or is it kind of like once you have once you, it could just go nine months, five months, two months, three months. She doesn't. Bora, she, it could go eleven and a half months, and then she gets a period. And again, a year later. 
or not likely that she'll do another 11 months and then another period? It's not that likely. It's not that likely, but it's possible because the real definition is 12 full months. And that's kind of the most, it's, it's really unpredictable. Remember, the first thing that we're gonna see is a 30-day cycle, maybe 29, 28. Then it spaces out. Then it can go crazy, Devora. Then it can get closer. Then it can skip one, two months. And then anything can happen. And guess what, Devora? Some people can have a period, never have another one, not have any of this shortening, lengthening, skipping. And if someone doesn't get into menopause by what age do we, or at 54 and they're still going pretty much monthly, is that possible? It is. Remember the average age is 51. I've seen people still having pretty regular periods at 55. Now, you know, I try to just look at them. I try to just see if they're irregular. If there's anything irregular, spotting in between, you know, I might do an ultrasound and a biopsy because I tend to practice pretty carefully. I don't want to be responsible for missing something on someone, but I do have 55-year-olds. Remember, 51 is just the average. Now, if I have someone who's 58, 59, it, it, it worries me because that's really outside the 45 to 55 range. That's an outlier. So it raises some red flags. I may do an ultrasound you know, see what's going on, so but, you know. three is still getting her period, could still get pregnant? If you read the literature, it says, anybody who's still menstruating needs birth control. You don't need birth control, so the literature says, if you've had one year of no periods. I think the oldest lady that I had get pregnant on her own, was 47. She stopped using birth control. She said, my periods are so infrequent. And I'll tell you the truth, Devora. I remember her very well. She got pregnant and she miscarried. She wasn't unhappy. She had a big family and her baby was still only, she was 47. So maybe her baby was like six. But the quality of that egg was so poor and we have greater uh, genetic abnormalities in our eggs over 40. So it was pretty much destined. Um, really can't say that, but she actually called her Rav and asked if I could give her the abortion pill. And her Rav is very smart. He said, no, you can't have the abortion pill. Just have Dr. Hilsenrath follow your HCG, your pregnancy hormones. And the rub said they'll go up and then they'll go down. And that's exactly what happened. You know, because um, that was a little bit of a surprise for her at 47. So people can or should be aware that it's possible. So even if the pregnancy may not go all the way through and it might, and you said that uh, it could be a pregnancy and whatever happens with that. So. At a certain age, decide what you want to do as far as preventing that pregnancy. We do know that pregnancy rates are less over 40, you know, lesser over 42 and 44. But if I have patients in that perimenopause, I still recommend birth control. Now, what I think a 45-year-old can do, 
a lot more effectively than a 25-year-old is spermicide. When someone's 20 and 22 and 24, they're so fertile that if they're trying to avoid pregnancy, I do not recommend spermicide because they are just so fertile. But for a 43-year-old, a 44, a 45-year-old, if they don't want an IUD, they don't want birth control pills, in the later 40s, the spermicide usually works. Again, some of it is that, you know, they're not going to get pregnant anyway. You know, reproductively speaking, 43, 44, 45 is old, reproductively speaking, you know, but still you need to use birth control until we are confirmed in the menopause. Again, you hear stories. I haven't heard so many. My latest pregnancy was a 47-year-old. You hear people 49, 50, 51. I'm really amazed. And they carried a term and they have a healthy baby. I personally haven't seen those ladies, but you hear stories. So the bottom line is if you don't want a baby in the perimenopause, you know, we need birth control. Okay. We covered so much. Uh, I'm looking forward to listening to the recording so I can like slow down and actually listen to it. Now, do you think, Devorah, I confused people with all these topics? No, I think that it's people will find what they want to hear and maybe listen to it a second time because for just the aspect, what I'm getting in summary is that it's very individual. You work with your doctor who understands your lifestyle and your medical and your health, your health background and your preferences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And but I think what you, what we covered here, what you covered here, is things to be able to ask your doctor, things to think about before you go to your doctor, things to, may I say, even Google so you get even more depth of information so you can have a better conversation, but not to self-medicate, not to, not to make any decisions for yourself, but have good questions. Yes, and I want to tell you something interesting. Um, I'm not really here to promote anything there are doctors that are not pro-hormone replacement. So if you come to me wanting it and I shoo-shoo you away, I'm not doing my job. Now I can say to you, Devorah, I'm not really so well-versed in it, but my colleague is. See him, see her. But what I saw last week on NAMS, North American Menopause, Menopause Society, is I saw something that said menopause providers. So I think the worst disservice we could do for ourselves is go to our regular OBGYN who's not educated or not knowledgeable enough or not comfortable enough or scared of the risks that he doesn't or she doesn't have the conversation with you because you deserve the conversation so that you can see if it's right for you. So NAMS, North American Menopause Society, may be the right place to find someone who is well-versed in it and an advocate, not to force you, but to tell you, Devora, I think it would be good for these symptoms, but these symptoms could be treated a different way, you know, or to say, okay, you know, you don't have a decreased libido, but your husband has prostate cancer to some other lady, but your hot flashes are bothering you. So let's just give you the antidepressant or um, you're going to the bathroom four times a night, relations is not the issue, but nocturia, urinary frequency 
let's just give you something vaginal. So if somebody's not comfortable discussing this, then we're at a disservice. So again, we have to see, are you my doctor comfortable with it? Are your colleagues comfortable? Can you refer me to somebody? Or we have to do our own research and, and find someone who can give us what we really deserve, the pros and the cons and an in-depth conversation about it, kind of like what we're doing here. And I think that also you're talking about the doctor should be comfortable. I think also the woman should be comfortable to talk about everything, whatever is going on, whether it's, there's nothing wrong with saying that you have a low libido. There's nothing wrong with saying that you, uh, to your doctor, especially, you don't have to announce it on, online, but to really have the full conversation, these are my concerns, these are my, this is my family history, that really know what you need to know and be willing to talk about it. And, be, and also be willing to push back on the doctor, no offense. When I go to the gynecologist, nobody asks me about libido or dryness. I ask all my ladies over 45, especially those that are even older, 50, 55, 60, are you still sexually active? Most of them thankfully say, yeah, why not? Some say, no, he can't or he has this issue, or we're not interested in that. But some of them say, no, I can't because I'm too dry or I have this issue or that issue. So I think I'm one of the few physicians. I don't ask that question to an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old. You know, 45-year-old, are you still sexually active? 50 years old, are you having hot flashes? Are you having any vaginal dryness? You know, is there anything going on in the bedroom that I can help you with? Nobody's ever asked me that. I mean, I know where to go to should I have an issue, but nobody's ever asked me. And I'm 63. So, you know, maybe maybe I need a new gynecologist, but, you know, we can't be shy with our gynecologist. I think like I you said, we need, we need to talk about those issues. To wrap up, uh, we've been talking a lot and there's just, there's so much more we can cover, but what kind of doctor are we talking about? Are we only talking about an OBGYN or can we go to an endocrinologist for this? It depends on the endocrinologist, yes. Some endocrinologists might want to specialize in diabetes. Some may want to specialize in other areas. An endocrinologist, an internist, an OBGYN. Now there's also reproductive endocrinologists, but a lot of the time, we are very, very busy doing the infertility part. But those are the the kind of doctors, you know. Um, cardiologist who's an internist first is probably not going to want to discuss it. Um, a gastroenterologist is not going to want to discuss it. Um, these days, of course, there's a lot of other healthcare providers. There may be a PA or a nurse practitioner, um, physician's assistant, um, who have an interest or a specialty in that. So it's really just reaching out to your healthcare providers to say, can you help me with this service in your office? And if they say no, getting a referral. But you're correct, endocrinologists, internists, OBGYN, or reproductive endocrinologists. Okay, so thank you. How can we reach you or beside NAMS, do you have any other recommendations of where people can find really reliable information? Yes. As a matter of fact, um, there's um, on these two websites, there's information for patients, ACOG, American College 
of obstetricians and gynecologists. There's a part for patients with patient information and frequent questions and answers. And also American Society for Reproductive Medicine, ASRM. I think they're both.com. They have tons and tons of information. And again, since we're mostly talking about the menopause, North American Menopausal Society. Those are pretty good places to go. Um, I just wanna give a word of caution. When you read Wikipedia, you have to be careful because anybody can put things in there. But if you see things from the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, they're probably top notch. You just have to be careful of some sites that are not really, um, not really um, written by people in the know. Nice. I think with these websites, there's enough. I'm going to put a uh, link to that in our on the website, and I'll see if I can even find the right patients page to give people directly into the right part. So okay, this has been so helpful. You answered a yes. lot of my questions throughout the conversation, and I already know what I want to talk to my doctor about. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for inviting me. It was so nice speaking to you. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me in another fascinating conversation about midlife. If you'd like to reach me, Devorah Krasniansky, to talk about your midlife or anything else, you can reach me at jewishmidlife at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website, jewishmidlife.com, and follow us on Jewish Midlife on Instagram or Facebook, and join our conversations in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Jewish Women Talk About Midlife. And share what we're doing with your friends and others in the midlife phase.